scripture reading is, again, Matthew 18. Matthew 18. We heard verses 21 through 35, the unmerciful servant. Now we back up and pick up at verse 15 through verse 20. 15 through 20, teaching of Jesus that immediately precedes the parable of the unmerciful, unforgiving servant. Matthew 18, verse 15, we'll read through to verse 20. This is God's Word. Listen. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven." Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Well, a good number of you remember uh, my sermon series of a few summers ago called That's Not in the Bible. And I know you know that because you often remind me of that when you say one of those common expressions found on a bumper sticker or a coffee mug that many people, including some Christians, believe uh, are found in the Bible but are not. Well, that series, uh, preparing for that series and leading into that, I began to think about all the verses in the Bible that are in the Bible but are commonly misunderstood and therefore misapplied. And so uh, this is a new series, a little different. That one was, that's not in the Bible. This uh, one is, this is in the Bible, uh, but it's probably or often misunderstood and therefore misapplied to the life of Christians. So to introduce this series, I'm borrowing or adapting the line from the movie, The Princess Bride. I know you know this. You keep using that verse... I do not think it means what you think it means. So you can imagine the overarching goal of a series like this is corrective. But if I could put it this way, we honor Christ best, don't we, when we study His Word so we both understand it and apply it correctly. We honor Christ best when we take His Word seriously, work hard to understand it properly, and therefore apply it in all the right ways as He intended it. So that's the goal of the whole series. It's got this corrective component to it. But each sermon will have its own purpose. Each sermon will have its own purpose. We're not simply uh, pointing out how a text is misused or misapplied. But we will be working together 
uh, with each of these passages toward a better understanding of it so that each text will in its own way, as God intended it, feed and nourish our souls. Now, I predict if past experience is to be counted on, some of you, after some of these sermons, will feel rather good about yourselves. You will tell me that you've never used that particular text in that incorrect way. To you, I will say in advance, I'm glad. I hope I'm not only, though, affirming your proper understanding of the text, but that somehow, through our working through it, you will have deepened your love for God's Word and therefore for God Himself. And I will encourage you to stay humble because there's still so much more we all need to learn. Others of you, I suspect, will, will be listening for other people. You'll be listening for someone because you know someone who regularly butchers this text and you will be itching to fix them. And to you, I say, I hope that somehow our reaffirmation of uh, what is true and right and good about God's Word in this text will have somehow deepened your love for God and for each other. So I'm encouraging you to stay humble and to be gentle. I also predict others of you might, from time to time, be offended. You will feel like I've somehow robbed you of one of your favorite verses. And you need to know the last thing I want you to do is feel like you need to cut out from your Bible some cherished verse. This series, different from the other one, is this is in the Bible. And the old saying is true, the misuse of something does not negate its proper use. Most of us, and I include myself here, have felt that unsettling pain of having to let go of a deeply held, maybe even cherished conviction that we turn out to discover is misguided, is plain wrong. And I'll simply ask you if you will be willing to subject with me your personal interpretation of a text to the light of the Scriptures, God's whole and entire word. Because here's what we're going to discover. Misunderstood and misapplied Scripture texts are usually, almost always, misunderstood and therefore misapplied because they're taken out of context. Remember, for example... That last chapter of Philippians, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That text is not about overcoming all odds and not buckling under the pressure of the expectations of an entire nation to score the game-winning goal in overtime to win the gold medal against Team Finland. Extra points if you get that reference. <laughs> but rather, that Christ strengthens me and grants the gift of contentment and endurance in the midst of hardship and suffering. That was the message of Philippians 4, at least that section. Christ grants me endurance and patience, the joy of contentment even in the middle of, of suffering and hardship. Context matters. 
Well, it matters here this morning. Look again with me at the words of Jesus in Matthew 18, verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Christians will usually pull out this verse when they show up for a midweek Bible study and half the group isn't there. Or when you've put considerable effort into planning a youth group event or a men's breakfast or a mission trip or you name it, only to be disappointed when a handful of people show up. Or when you're the pastor who's worked really hard at preparing a sermon and you stand in the pulpit during an evening service on a Sunday night in the middle of August and you look out at a record small crowd and someone in the group in one of those situations will pray. And in a way of massaging their own sense of disappointment at the small turnout, or to help maybe those who did show up feel a little better about being present, that person will, in their prayer, comfort themselves by reminding Jesus of his own words. Some of this, by the way, gets expressed out loud. Some of it remains in the heart, but it goes something like this. Lord, I worked really hard for this. I had really hoped for a bigger turnout. And we don't know where everyone else is or why they thought they had something better to do than to take part of this amazing ministry experience that I worked so hard to create. But as you say in your word, Lord, two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. So, Lord, we take comfort in that. Now confirm your presence with us. Make this moment, even though it, 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 we're really disappointed by it, make this moment something where it's clear to us that you are present with us as you promised. You keep using that text. I do not think it means what you think it means. Since context matters, we're going to back up to verse 15. A little later, we're going to back up to something even earlier than that. But notice, as we take a run at this, we're not simply correcting an understanding of verse 20, but we get the added blessing and the benefit of watching Jesus help us understand and act to increase the joy and the fellowship in the body of Christ. If your brother sins against you. We can stop right there. Every one of us in this room has had someone sin against us. We are all victims of someone's sin against us. Now we also recognize we are also sinners, but for this purpose, recognize here, if Jesus says your brother sins against you, and please also notice this is an unnecessarily gendered word or translation here. It could be a sister. Sisters sin against us sometimes too. But notice a few things right from the beginning. First, this section is addressed to disciples. It's about disciples. It's for Christians. It's about Christians. It's directed to Christians. And it's in the context of the church. 
Jesus is describing a process for dealing with interpersonal sin within a church family. Brothers, sisters, sin against each other. And if your brother or your sister sins against you, go tell him or her their fault. And do that between you and your sibling alone. If Jesus says he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And the story ends there. Jesus assumes you are a Christian. Jesus assumes someone has sinned against you. And Jesus assumes that the one who has sinned against you is also a Christian. That you are both members of the family of God, brothers and sisters, and the household of faith. And that in itself is significant because we can assume that the one who has sinned against us, the one to whom we are going to speak, has brought about a breach in our Christian relationship. But it's also significant because the one who has sinned against us is a Christian, which means she herself has understood and experienced the grace and the mercy of God and the forgiveness God gives us in Christ. And through your going and your telling, you are now making available to her your forgiveness, your desire for restoration and reconciliation. All that to say, both we and the one who has sinned against us understand and embrace the central concern Jesus has in this passage that there be restoration and reconciliation based on repentance, acknowledging the sin, confessing it, seeking forgiveness, being given that forgiveness, and being restored in a right relationship. There are plenty of other places in Scripture we're not going to go to today, but there are plenty of other places in Scripture where sin in general or sinful lifestyles or practices are addressed more publicly and indirectly by God's Word. But Jesus is laying out here the pattern for dealing with personal, even nearly private, sins. The sin in view here is an offense against you by someone, and that offense is not necessarily known to anyone else. Or could possibly be known to a very small group of people. It's also possible, by the way, that the person who has sinned against you is oblivious to their sin, does not realize they have sinned or have offended you. There are times, God tells us, there are times when we operate out of a kind of love for the body by which we allow our love for others to cover a multitude of sins. In other words, we don't have to take up everything every time with every person. Our love covers it. Notice we're not holding onto those sins. We're not keeping track of them. We're not giving a full accounting of them. Our love is covering them. But this sin Jesus is speaking of here is against you in a kind of way that brings about some kind of breach in your relationship. And you want to address it. And Jesus gives you a way of doing that. 
Notice Jesus says the first step is to address in private the person who has sinned against you. Jesus didn't mean a text or an email. And I don't just say that anachronistically. Jesus is speaking here of a face-to-face conversation. Now, we're not given explicit reasons for why this is done to be done in private, but I think you can, we can make these uh, conclusions. I don't think this is too much of a stretch. Remember, the goal here is restoration. The goal is an interpersonal reaction of, of confrontation about, or explanation about the sin and the hope of repentance and then forgiveness and a mutual reconciliation. A personal private conversation, first, a personal private conversation on the part of the one who has been sinned against mitigates the temptation to magnify that sin. Mitigates the temptation to magnify it by retelling it, by having an audience hear it, and audiences love to hear about the sins of other people, don't they? And we sometimes love to tell those stories. A personal private conversation uh, mitigates that temptation to rally our friends and our allies uh, who will further uh, affirm us in the sin, in our, in our hurt, and who will and allow us to become entrenched in our sense of being wronged. Notice, notice Jesus says the person has sinned against you. You have been wronged. You are someone against whom someone has sinned. But that personal private conversation to start with, to start with, allows you to deal with it without making uh, all of your friends come to rally around you in that moment. It also minimizes the risk of public shaming or humiliating the person who has sinned against you. It maximizes the opportunity you have for seeking clarity about what actually happened and to allow that person to from the heart confess their sin and you freely and from your heart to forgive them. To put this in the simplest terms, Jesus says, when someone sins against you, talk to them before you talk about them. Which, if we know our own hearts, is a whole lot easier to say than it is to do. Again, notice the goal. Your brother, your sister might listen to you. And you will have then gained your brother or your sister which is shorthand as they might listen to you, it's shorthand for them actually hearing you. Hearing what they have done in your words expressed to them. Allowing them to to have the spirit of Christ work conviction of sin in their heart to have them realize, oh no, I did that. To own it. To own some sense of not only their action, but its consequences for you and your life. And then to 
repent. Not simply to say, well, I'm sorry that happened to you, or I'm sorry you feel that way. But to own their sin. To seek your forgiveness. And then, for you to grant it. You've gained your brother. But Jesus says, if not, that is, if uh, he doesn't listen to you, well, there's another step. Verse 16, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Find a friend or two to come along with you. Again, you don't start here, but this is step two. Do notice these two friends are brought you bring them along for at least two reasons. First one, again, with the goal of restoration and reconciliation in mind, the first one is that these two might add their voices to yours and you may be able to persuade your sister who has sinned against you that in fact she has sinned against you and ought to repent. But don't miss this, the two or three are also there to become witnesses in support of your charge should you need to take the next step. That is, if your brother or your sister does not listen to you. In other words, it's not that they're uh, present, it's not that they were necessarily present for or witnesses of the original sin for which you've been aggrieved. But they're going to be able to testify that you confronted your sister, your sister refused to repent. And Jesus is drawing here on an Old Testament principle we find in a few places in Leviticus 19.15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that has been committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. That was a Levitical principle travel through the Old Testament. Paul repeats this in 2 Corinthians 13. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And Jesus affirms this. This person, the friend or the two friends who come, add their voices to try to persuade the one who sinned against you to repent of their sin, but also to serve as witnesses for this interaction. So back to our text, though restoration is the goal, Jesus says, if the one who has sinned against you refuses to listen to the two or three of you now, tell it to the church. Notice again now, it's no longer the original sin in view. It is no longer that first sin that that person sinned against you that is the issue. The issue, rather, is the refusal to admit guilt or to repent on the part of the one who sinned against you. And the refusal of that person to admit sin or to repent when confronted by two or three. And now the matter becomes a matter of concern for the whole church, which we take to mean first as a matter brought to those who have the authority to do something about it in the church. And I I can show you uh, that in a moment. But this is Jesus speaking in the Gospels, and you can see how this gets developed uh, later, in uh, uh, especially by Paul. But the church will end up declaring this unrepentant sinner 
to be an unbeliever. To count him, Jesus says, as a Gentile or a, a tax collector that is outside of the family of Christ. We're still a long way, aren't we, from verse 20, where two or three are gathered. We're getting there. Before we do, though, notice how profoundly practical Matthew 18, 15 through 17 is. Every one of you has been sinned against by someone. Every one of you has sinned against someone. Every one of you can find yourself in verse 18 as having someone who sinned against you and you have a decision to make. Are you going to get together with them to tell them his faults? Or are you going to be, which is sometimes easier, and some people actually seem to prefer this, perpetually aggrieved? Always having that person in your debt not wanting to grant forgiveness? Or are you going, are the kind of person who wants to be affirmed in your being aggrieved by having all of your friends know about how badly that sister in Christ has sinned against you? And will you do that before you go to your sister? Will you do that before you speak to your brother alone? Again, here's the joy of this passage, the hope here, is we're talking about brothers and sisters. We do sin against each other, don't we? Sometimes we do it more than once, which is why it's no surprise that Matthew stitched his gospel together to have Peter coming up and saying to Jesus immediately after this, Lord, how many times? Seven times? Seems like a lot. One time, two times, three times, four, I forgive you, I forgive you. Again, okay. And that's why Jesus launches into this parable of the unmerciful servant. Matthew 18, profoundly practical, and any one of you could, no, all of you, could probably put this into practice this week if you wanted to. The goal, to gain your sibling. In verse 17, and now we are getting to verse 20. In verse 17, we have the second of only two places in all the Gospels where the word church appears. We know that the word church is going to be used throughout the rest of the New Testament to describe the family of God, the people of God, gathered in assembly to worship Him, to grow together as one body. That's the church. But it's used here by Jesus, tell it to the church, for the second time, and only the second time, in all the Gospels, the first time, do you remember where? Matthew 16. Two, verse, two chapters earlier. Jesus was pressing his disciples in Matthew 16 on the question of his identity. Who do men say that I am? You remember Peter? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon Peter. Uh, this has not been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, this confession, I will, this truth, I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then he said to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Keys, open, shut. Whatever you bind on earth, this is Matthew 16, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Which is exactly what he says in verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, more properly, shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Here's the point. Jesus, in the middle of, his, of two out of three teachings to his disciples that he was going up to Jerusalem, he was going to fall into the hands of sinful men, he was going to be put to death, and then he was going to be raised from the dead. In between two of those, dead center, is Matthew 18, verse 20. And in the middle of this, Jesus is teaching his disciples that he is going to, through them, build a church, that he is in his death and in his resurrection going to be paying for the penalty of those enormous debts that we all owe to God for all of our sin. He's going to pay that in full. And he's going to be building a group of people who will, yes, sin against each other and who he wants to forgive one another. But in the middle of that, he says when the church comes together, as we think of it, uh, through the authority Christ has given to it, when the leaders of the church come together in the authority Christ has given to them and as, as it has been duly recognized by the people that they rule Christ's church in his place. When those authorities are united in prayer and purpose, when they have heard the two or the three testify to the sin of and the lack of repentance of another person in the body, and when their efforts are not persuasive in promoting repentance in that person, the one who has sinned against you back in verse 15, when their efforts are not successful in persuading repentance, promoting repentance, Jesus empowers those leaders to declare that person, that persistently impenitent person, to be outside of the body of Christ. But catch this. What are they doing? What are they saying? But they're making a declaration on earth that has already been made in heaven. Because Jesus is saying, when there's someone who is caught up in sin, has sinned against someone, has been confronted by that person, refuses to listen, when they're brought, two or three witnesses are come and refuses to listen, when brought to the church and refuses to listen, that's persistent impenitence. That's someone who does not get the gospel. That's someone who doesn't have Jesus. 
And so the authorities are making a declaration on earth as it has been made in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Notice there is a desire for loosening. There is a desire through the passage for restoration. So now the two or three who agree on anything on earth in verse 18 are united in prayer. The two or three in verse 16 are the same two or three, the witnesses, and the one sinned against. And all those two or three are the same two or three. Here it is in verse 20. In praying to God for wisdom and grace and for charity and for clarity and for courage in confronting a sinner who has been brought now to the church after having refused to listen to the one he has sinned against and the two or three who've been brought together now. That one, standing in front of the church or by those granted the authority of Christ to rule the church, who now recognize in this person a complete and persistent failure to repent is by God's own declaration outside of the grace of God in Christ. And this is one way the line of the Lord's Prayer comes to expression, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now think ahead with me just for a moment to the trial of Jesus. Jesus is standing before the council and the high priests. What are they trying to do? They are trying to conduct a trial that satisfies the requirements of Leviticus. Mark, in his gospel, tells this story. Jesus, before the council, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. And Mark writes this, it's glorious. He says, for many bore false witness against him. But their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. They could not find two or three to say the same thing, to find Jesus worthy of death. We know that Jesus was not worthy of death. We know Jesus was put to death. We know that the will of God in heaven was that his son would die in what we might see as the greatest miscarriage of justice, an innocent man, falsely accused, falsely condemned, put to death, but knowing that in God's great will, he was put to death, bearing our sin. He was considered guilty because of his close association with our guilt. He's put to death, but he's vindicated and raised from the dead. He ascends to heaven, and he says to his disciples on the way out, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
And he says, behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Or you might resonate with the words of the psalmist, where can I flee from your presence? You are united to Christ. Christ is never far from you. He's with you even when you are alone in your car or in your room, in your apartment, or even when you just feel alone. In other words, you don't need Matthew 18, 20 to tell us Jesus is with us when there's just two or three gathered. You don't need Matthew 18, 20 to tell us that uh, Jesus by His Spirit is with us, even if we have a small crowd at an evening service or we need some sense of affirmation that our Bible study really is great, even though just a small handful of people showed up. Jesus is with you. He really is. But you don't need the assurance of Matthew 18, 20 to tell you that. You know who needs the assurance of Matthew 18, 20? Those people who've had to sit in judgment on someone who has sinned and who refuses to repent, who has once claimed to be a Christian, and who refuses to acknowledge their sin or to lay hold of God's forgiveness, to be restored and reconciled to someone against whom they've sinned, even when confronted by the person and then by their two friends and then by the whole church. And now that church has to make a determination that they trust because they're united to Christ in, they're united to each other in prayer for the wisdom and the clarity to make a good judgment. They trust that their judgment lines up with God's own, but that they are declaring in what is the most frightening thing of all, that this person is outside of the body of Christ. And Jesus says, when you do that, when you go through that process, when you come to that conclusion, when you make that declaration, I am among you. I am with you. You have done the will of my Father in heaven. You can see how Matthew 18, 20 has a very narrow application. You keep using that verse. I do not think it means what you once thought it meant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel transforming our lives, forgiving us our sin, enabling us to forgive others. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son who assures us of his presence, of his approbation when we make difficult declarations. We thank you, Father, on the flip side of this, that Jesus is with us when we make evaluations of people's faith and testimony and receive them into fellowship, declaring of them they do belong to the body of Christ, as you have already said, because they have put their faith and trust in Jesus. Receive our thanks for this word. Receive our thanks for the ways you correct our thinking, deepen our understanding, creating in us a deeper love for you and for your word and for your son, Jesus, and for your people. 
Now grant us, Lord, the grace to confront those who have sinned against us. And if we're on the other side of that equation, Father, grant us the grace to listen and to repent. And to trust that your people here understand the gospel of grace and forgiveness and that there's restoration for us. Lord, all this we ask with confidence that you hear us in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen.